when I get to work with a group of managers, my messaging to them is that your job is to help them be successful. I hear Bill Brashear in the back of my head because, you know, this is also something that he would say. But yes, your job is to help them be successful. If you want them to give more than what is minimally required for their paycheck, you have to capture their head, their heart, and their hands. Oh my gosh, here we are back to emotional change, behavior change, and performance change. But you have to capture their head, their heart, and their hands. Once you capture their head, their heart, and their hands, because they trust you, there's mutual respect, and they know you have their best interest at heart, they will then give you that discretionary energy. Beyond that, you also have to show them a path. Hello and welcome to Business Psychology Unplugged. In today's episode, I get the luxury of talking to Tina Graziotto, and Tina is a talent development executive coach at Dale Carnegie. Tina, welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure and my honor to be here. Oh, that's very kind. Now, I have to tell the listeners that we do know each other. That is basically a thread that the listeners are going to experience throughout this series that I don't really have a lot of interest in interviewing people that I haven't known and had a connection with. And so the connection with Tina for the listeners is I've worked with Tina. Tina is an executive coach, as I mentioned, and we've sort of partnered up because as I'm a psychologist, there's been a couple of profiling that I've we've worked together on with some of your clients. I've also worked with Tina as a student as Tina came through our leadership flight school at Bartel and Bartel. When you're working with someone, Tina, that is uncomfortable, kind of coming out of their shell, I'm guessing they put up a whole bunch of psychological barriers in their mind. And not just psychological. I mean, there may be some work-related barriers that they just haven't experienced before. Could you talk a little bit about that and maybe how you think people get out of that sort of box that they put themselves in? Well, it's that think, feel, do kind of model. Think, feel, do, get. What I think determines how I feel. How I feel determines what I do. And what I do determines the results that I get. So that's actually similar to the response mm-hmm. cycle, I think, that we walked through in flight right. school too, right? Uh, yeah, and one. people can call it all different things. But the idea here is... Sure. It's cognitive yes, behavioral yes, therapy. more or less. Believe, yes, right? more or less. And so yeah. we work a lot on emotional change and behavior change to get to performance change. So when a person is locked up mentally because they are fearful or they are stuck and they can't get out of their comfort zone, we have to help them over that emotional barrier, whatever it is. And oftentimes it's rooted in self-confidence, right? They just do not have the self-confidence to believe in themselves to do something different, take a step outside their comfort zone, try something new. And so it's going to sound so simple and maybe even very trite, but praise, 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 praise. Give them small wins. It's Mm. really just about affirming and reassuring and helping them see that they are already a successful person and building upon what they already have going for them. 
And so a lot of it is just encouragement and praise. Hey, you're doing great. And so we look for the baby steps, like small wins along Mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. And just to circle it back to visioning, sometimes the vision has to be a little shorter, right? So the focal length. We're not looking out 30 years from now. We're not looking out 10 years from now. How about just like (laughs) two weeks from now or three weeks from now? So even when I work with coaching clients, our stint is generally about three months. And so I help them with just kind of a vision for that three months. One, because Mm -hmm. it helps us to be extremely focused and action-oriented to get kind of tangible or measurable results where we can actually go back and look, okay, what have we done in three months? try to look out too many months or years, it's harder to measure that. So they might not be with you at that point anyway. They might not be able to stick to that plan. Selfishly, from a business standpoint, we get repeat business when the people paying for the Mm -hmm. coaching say, wow, we see a change in that person. So Right. In three months, which it's not a short engagement if you're if you're seeing them regularly, if they're developing each time, if they're bringing up issues they face with you. Some of the clients I'm working with, I speak to them once a month and others, if I'm lucky enough, it will be once a week. And the difference is drastic. And, you know, if the person really wants to learn and they've got things to overcome, they can really achieve it. So that sounds like pretty intensive three months that you have with Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. When you have somebody that doesn't really have that confidence and you're talking about sort of baby steps, really, right, or at least breaking it down into small pieces, do they have the support of their managers Do you think that their managers are comfortable giving them that regular (laughs) praise that you're describing? I think it really depends on the person. So sometimes I believe the manager is part of the problem. (laughs) You know, the manager Mm -hmm. has in some ways maybe destroyed this person's self-confidence, just created a bad situation, maybe not created a bad situation, but made the person who might have maybe been fragile to start with (laughs) worse, (laughs) you know, because of the way they handled them. And then in other cases, absolutely. And I think especially when it's one-on-one coaching, it's always about, and you know this, Ben, it's always about the way it's presented to the person who's going to be coached. It's always what kind of support are they going to have? It's about checking back in with the sponsor, the person who's footing the bill and what are you seeing and are we happy with what we're seeing? Do you ever find that you're working with someone, you're coaching somebody and then you're starting to talk to their manager and you're basically coaching absolutely 100 i have a uh, i have a client right now that i'm working with and you know i have to touch base with the manager and yeah it's like okay now listen here's what you need to do <laughs> go, okay <laughs> or, or i'll sessions. say please yeah. stop you know doing this so that's good <laughs> and they're open to it which is great i mean they don't realize what they're doing so Yeah, I find it interesting when that happens and they're like, we should probably catch up again to hear about their progress again. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we should probably meet to talk about their progress. Yeah, Um, (laughs) that goes on for two or three sessions and you're like, okay, so I'm glad we're all on the same page here that you're not being coached right now. Exactly. Let's get into the sort of the meat of this podcast episode, which is, of course, coaching. And I think anyone who's listening to this is either somebody who has already entered the field of coaching, maybe they don't want to hear another coaching podcast, but there may be people that are just really interested in understanding Dale Carnegie's philosophy. But in addition to that, you know, there are going to be people from HR that are thinking about coaching or thinking about working with a coach or maybe a graduate student from an MBA program or an IO psychology program that are thinking like, oh, I want to know what coaching is. So 
Would you mind just kind of, and I'll try to not butt in too much because obviously we both do some of this, but you do it a lot more than I do. So what really attracted you to coaching? And perhaps if you could sort of walk us through how you became a coach, that would be really great. Jeez, so Pete, how much time do we have? Because it's a long story, (laughs) but I'll make it short. As a kid grew up saying, I'm going to be an executive coach someday, you know, so it's one of those things that I just sort of fell into, I guess. When I got out of college, my first four or five jobs was sales. I mean, straight up, door to door, like business to business. Like I was out there on the streets doing sales and and I did okay. I mean, you know, you have a personality, you talk to people and somebody's going to buy something. So, and during that time, my dad, I mentioned, owned the franchise in Pittsburgh and I had been involved in the Dale Carnegie courses from the time I was 16. So I, I stayed involved as a course coach, you know, so the course coach was there to assist the certified trainer and, you know, engage with the participants and just kind of be a helper. So I did that for years and years and years until I finally got certified as a Dale Carnegie trainer. And then that journey, and I still worked doing my other jobs and I was considered advocational. So I would train Dale Carnegie programs in the evening and do my day job during the day. And I was starting to find that like, wow, working with people in a training, you know, environment is way more rewarding. And I was making peanuts. It was like $150 (laughs) a night or something like that. Well, maybe not even that much. And like, I was enjoying that so much more than my day job. So eventually I did go to work full time for Dale Carnegie, not necessarily as a trainer, but just full time. So I did sales for my dad's business. And so the story goes. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that for me, having that thrill of watching people have those breakthrough moments during the program, during the session, have those transformations, mm-hmm. that, that emotional change that eventually leads to the behavior change that they need to get under control so that they can have a mm-hmm. performance change was thrilling to me. I mean, it's, in fact, I say it often, I would do this for no money. And in fact, I will go weeks on end without invoicing somebody for my time because the money, the money doesn't, I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter. Yes. And Ben, let's be honest. It's not the fine Yeah. And let's be honest too. You know that my attention to detail is about this deep. So I do sometimes (laughs) just can't manage my details, but so that's kind of how I got into it. So I went from being Dale Carnegie trainer and certified in the Dale Carnegie programs to moving eventually into, and I still train for Dale Carnegie, but moving into this one-on-one coaching, mm-hmm. executive coaching that I do. Okay. So just to take a couple of things there. So the buzz that you get out of seeing that change happen, it sounds to be, I mean, I found it too, but it sounds to be very addictive. Oh, yeah. And maybe you could just talk a tiny bit about the emotional change turning into behavioral change that you mentioned before. Well, could you give us like an example of that or just those people that maybe missed the understanding mm -hmm. of that? Okay. So the easiest example I can give you is my own. So I told you that I was in sales for a bunch of years. And at one point, my franchise owner, when I was working for Dale Carnegie, I was really in a full-time trainer mode. And he comes to me and he says, Tina, we want you to do more selling activity. And I said, "Uh, (laughs) no. And hell no. I mean, like, no, I don't want to go back to selling. Like, I don't want that to be my full-time responsibility. So the biggest thing was he really wanted me to cold call. So 
emotionally, right? My feelings about cold call calling are like, ew, I don't <laughs> like it. I don't want to do it. I'm not excited about it. And so, but you, you had experienced nothing. I did, though, but right? I just didn't really like doing it. I mean, it's. <laughs> You didn't like the door being slammed in your face? What's, who doesn't yeah, like that? It's, um, I just, it's one of those dreaded evils that you have to do as a salesperson, like cold calling. And this was before LinkedIn and everything. So the emotional change, right, that I needed to have was I needed to recognize that the cold calling was going to lead to my success, at least in terms of what my boss wanted from me, right? Because I wasn't mm -hmm. selling anything. So performance change is increase revenue dollars coming through the door. So before I can have a behavior change, meaning I'm going to actually get out there and do that activity, I have to first reconcile in my head emotionally that this is going to be good for me and I'm going to find a way to enjoy it or I'm going to find a way to get past whatever the thing was, right? Emotionally. Fear of rejection, uh. just the dread of like picking up the phone call. What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? Anybody who is a salesperson will completely relate to this. Yeah, yeah. I can relate to this too, Tina. I don't know if I told you this, but I used to do software sales when I was in my 20s. Those people listening are going to see a pattern of coaches <laughs> where you basically have to... Slight of mind is a term that I've heard more in, in our community. But you have to be a good communicator, obviously. You have to be a good listener to be a good salesperson, right? But you also have to have sort of the guts to put yourself out there, take opportunities, take risks, and try and create something mm -hmm. out of nothing, right? And I, and I remember doing cold calling. Anyone who worked with me at that time will probably laugh because I hated cold calling. Most salespeople um, do, but, by the way. <laughs> yeah, everybody hated it. Like there was probably one guy in my team. He would like drink a, one of those energy mm -hmm. drinks. This was one of those five-hour energy drinks. He would knock back one of those at like seven o'clock in the morning. And then he would just hit the mm -hmm. phones. And it was just like a whole bunch of drug addicts hitting the phones, trying to make calls. So I do understand where you're coming from. And the only time I actually... As soon as I got a meeting with a client, I would get like two meetings and then I'd put down the phone. I wouldn't want to Good any, do any more work that day. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, listen, honestly, if I can get two meetings a week, like that's a pretty good deal. I'm probably going to get one of those as clients, you know. And my managers would always say to me, Ben, if you just made 50 phone calls a day, you know, or 60 phone calls a day, think how much money you'd yes. make. And I'd be like, yeah, but, I, you know, I can still sort of hit my targets with yeah. three calls yeah. a day. <laughs> It is kind of weird when I got so there. that's a so you know my own personal example like you relate sales calls like there's you know we all have these things that we just don't like to do or don't enjoy if we yeah. circle that back then to like confidence so I can think about a gentleman that I've coached emotional change for this guy right he was a command and control leader D C mm -hmm. temperament very blunt direct urgent precise. This guy used to cut people off at their knees for sport. He would get them into a meeting and lead them down this path with questions just to show that they were wrong. Okay. Oh. So you know who I'm talking about, right? Nice guy. So, nice guy. so think about, you know, this guy's a <laughs> you know, high level executive in his company. Mm -hmm. So think about the emotional change that he had to go through to be able to see himself differently, right? So emotionally, he needed control. Like he needed to have control of everything and he needed mm -hmm. to learn how to let go of that control. Emotionally, fear. 
behaviorally, he could not let go of that control until he got over whatever was in his head that was keeping him thinking he needed to have that control, whether it was superstition that has led him to this place, well, well, this has always worked for me. And so why would I change that? Or fear of losing control, fear of mistakes, which a high C temperament is going to experience that very deeply because mistakes are fatal for them. If we just go back to that in a kind of a more serious tone, besides I just don't like cold calling, you can see it's very, very deep. When we don't address that, the behavior change can't happen. So when you have somebody who has that fear of losing control, or as you say, it could be a superstition, if I understand correctly, and we do some of this as well, but I think because you spend much more of your time, because we do sort of a wide array of different things with people, you're saying that that person is never going to change their behavior until they identify the emotion behind that behavior. In this case, it could be fear. It could be a fear of different things. Do you go down that route with them to to sort of identify why they're doing that in order to then sort of reboot them? Or do you just sort of focus on the behaviors that we need them to do and try and have a positive emotion about that Mm -hmm. behavior? Well, I am not a psychologist, so I'm not qualified, I guess, to poke people like (laughs) get on my couch and, and, and let me psychoanalyze your emotions. I think you'd be fine. What's that? You think I'd do fine? Okay. I think you'd be fine. Yeah. I say, uh, you can go for it. Well, but the point is, uh, you know, so I'm not qualified at that level, but basically through questioning, I mean, we just have some really good dialogues and we ask questions and technique, right? Where we get people to explore those feelings for themselves, they will Mm. eventually come to it. And sometimes I will say that cognitive behavioral theory, sometimes if you just challenge the behavior, it works in reverse and it will impact the feeling that they're having. So if you challenge the behavior and somebody like a DC temperament, right? I mean, you throw down a challenge to them, they're like, oh, God, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah they can watch me. So if you challenge the behavior and they trust you enough, as the coach, they have to trust what you're saying and they trust you enough, they will try mm-hmm. the thing that you're suggesting. And so if they change the behavior, oftentimes they'll go, oh, right. They have light bulb moment where they go, that doesn't feel so bad. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. it feels nice to not make people mm-hmm. look stupid in a meeting. You know, It feels nice to have people react to me differently. It sometimes can work it in reverse. So it can go both ways. Those people that have that light bulb moment, I wonder how many moments they've had where people have sort of smiled back at them in a meeting and that they've been able to sort of sit back and hear all of this organizational intelligence and ideas flowing across the room. You know, you wonder if that's the first time they've really seen Mm -hmm. that. It probably is a fairly eye-opening event. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. And then two, this is my favorite moment when I meet with my executives and, you know, we start every meeting with, okay, well, so tell me about your wins. What were your wins this week? And they go, so-and-so came up to me and said, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) Because they noticed That they were, now again, I'm thinking about one specific person, this executive I mentioned, because he was more patient. He was gentler, I guess, in his approach. He wasn't so domineering and like people are like, whoa, you know, and that's... He actually asked people how Yeah, right. And that's when (laughs) those light bulbs come on for them. And I just sit back and go, see, (laughs) I told (laughs) you. 
you know, you're tapping into really, I mean, we're going to go off in all sorts of directions here, but, you know, the whole DC thing, those people who are listening, I've mentioned DISC a couple of times on this podcast. It is not the be all and end all of every instrument, but it is a very good sort of introduction to the world of psychology in the workplace and drive the D, conscientiousness, the C. The DC temperaments do tend to be the ones that climb the ladder the fastest and they seem to be the ones that need the most coaching or at least they seem to be the ones that I end up working with Mm -hmm. quite a lot. What's your take on that? Is there a pattern of the types of temperaments you Mm -hmm. you work with? I agree that the DC temperament tends to be the most challenged from a people perspective. When more senior you become in an organization, the more you have to rely on people because you can't do everything yourself. And so the more senior you become, the more you have to rely on your relationships and your influence and your communication skills. And I totally agree, DC temperaments seem to be the most challenged, but have the most, I think, potential for awesomeness when they can Mm -hmm. get it under control. Well, that's because they, and I think if I understand you, they have the potential for awesomeness because they've got the ability Mm -hmm. to be successful in Mm -hmm. your job. They've got the ability, but then there's this whole people side of things that, okay, that's easier to learn or it's easier to sort of, fake in the Mm run-up to learning. And so that's easier than us to sort of go on the other side and take someone that's a lower performer, Mm -hmm. but gets on well Mm -hmm. with everybody and turn them into some high performer. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, so yes, absolutely. So when we look at some of the studies that Dale did years and years and years ago, and then Harvard has done a study here more recently, I think it was 2014 or 2016, they were really looking at the factors that contribute to a person's success. And there's really three factors. There's attitude, skill, and knowledge. And that our skill and our attitude contribute to 85% or more of our ultimate success. And the knowledge, what we actually know, is like the ticket in the door. It's about 10%. If you're in a highly, highly technical role, like a neurosurgeon or something like that, it might be 15%. But the point is, Mm. like what you just said, right, from a knowledge base, and an aptitude, I have the knowledge that I need to do this job and to do it well. And then if your attitude sucks towards people and you're negative and you don't have a positive outlook and you know, you're not enthusiastic and you're not inspiring and all that, and you don't have the skills mm-hmm. to listen well and to communicate clearly and some of those things, you will be limited in your success. And so mm-hmm. From a coach's perspective, we're not going to give people knowledge on their job. I tell people all the time, like, listen, you you are the expert at blank, right? (laughs) But we can help you with the attitude and the skill. And that's a choice. Your attitude is a choice. Like, you can choose to be more approachable. You can choose to like people more or be more warm with people. You know, when we do the vector balance, okay, where's your empathy? Where's your warmth? Where's your helpfulness? Mm -hmm. And you can develop a skill. Skill is just repetition of a thing. When I get to work with a group of managers, my messaging to them is that your job is to help them be successful. And I hear Bill Brashear in the back of my head because, you know, this is also something that he would say. But yes, your job is to help them be successful. If you want them to give more than what is minimally required for their paycheck, you have to capture their head, their heart, and their hands. Oh my gosh, here we are back to emotional change, behavior change, and performance change. But you have to capture their head, their heart, and their hands. Once you capture their head, their heart, and their hands, because they trust you, there's mutual respect, and they know you have their best interest at heart, 
they will then give you that discretionary energy. Beyond that, you also have to show them a path. Like your Mm -hmm. job is to put them in a place where they can thrive, where they are doing their very, very best work. If you have somebody who's not in the right seat and they are not doing their very best work and they're not doing what they really like and enjoy doing, they will be disengaged. And you could be the greatest manager ever. In fact, I just had an example of this. A gentleman that I'm coaching right now received an employee from another department. And this employee was basically on his final warning. He was on a PIP. And when this new manager received him into his department, they had a long heart-to-heart talk. And he literally said, I hated my manager. I hated working for him. I hated everything about him. I didn't like the way he treated me. And his performance suffered. Well, now that he's under this new manager, like, like, I mean, he is like a completely different person. Again, this is in some sort of a sales role. And his sales numbers are flourishing and he's got a team and his, his team loves him and he's like a completely That's different awesome. person. So we call that being retired on the job. I mean, he hung in there. He didn't want to leave the company because he really liked the company, <laughs> but he just couldn't give an effort for his manager. When you work with someone who is on a performance improvement plan, do you ever get the idea that it's the company's really managing them out versus they're actually trying to get them to improve their performance to keep their job. And if so, how does that affect the way you work with that person? Yeah, I can recall one specific gal that I worked with and it was, for her, it was do or die. And they put the cards on the table with her. They told her that they loved her as an employee in terms of her work product and her passion for the business and what she was able to do. She was super creative. She was very passionate about the people that she served, the external customers. But she was horrible to work with. She was the person that walked around with a chip on her shoulder. She had this righteous indignation all the time. She was just not a nice person. And she could pick a fight with anybody over nothing. Just it sounds like she wasn't a very happy no, person. No, and that's what we discovered. She had some of her own, call them demons, whatever you want to call them, that she needed to reconcile. Yeah. And she was like one of those people that always had to be right. She, had, she just had to be right. She couldn't let things mm. go. So. The HR department said, like, look, we want you to work for our organization. We value what you bring to our organization. And they had so many conversations with her leading up to me coming in. So mm-hmm. you got to stop doing this and you can't do that. And you have to stop behaving this way. She would act up in meetings and like walk out in the middle of meetings. <laughs> she was bad. So anyways. <laughs> Behave like a Yes, baby. exactly. So she knew like this was do or die. And One of the things that I find really important when you're coaching a person is to get a coaching contract from them. And so Mm -hmm. I got the coaching contract from her and I said, the contract is basically like, look, you know, we're going to talk about some really uncomfortable things and I'm going to ask you some really hard questions and I'm going to probably tell you some things that you don't really want to hear. Do you want to hear them? And do you want to have this conversation? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Do you, do you ever get a, Okay, no. well, then we're done. I mean, and you know, and Ben, you know as well as I do. Like, if the person says, no, thank you, well, then I, we're done here, you know? I, you uh-huh. can't coach a person who doesn't want to be coached. And you can't give feedback to somebody that you have not been given permission to give that feedback to. So I got the coaching contract from her and we dug in and it absolutely saved her job. Absolutely. Wow. She must have been walking away from these sessions, like exhausted. And I will say she was probably the only person that I coached where I was exhausted at the end. It was a lot Mm -hmm. of hard work for me 
to get into her mind a little bit, you know, that EC and get her to see what she wasn't seeing in herself. She was probably one of the hardest, but the most rewarding because it changed her life dramatically. When I have people that I work with who will talk about people like her, right? So in other words, Mm -hmm. I have to work with this employee that is behaving badly, behaving like a child, call it what you want. I always have to remind them they're behaving like that for a reason. Like there's like you really, we need to feel sorry for this person right? because there's something that is driving that behavior and we don't know what it is. And listen, if you knew what it was, you would absolutely see them in a different way. Mm-hmm. So how about a little grace and recognize that you'll change you. Don't worry about them. In that moment, they're feeling attacked by that person or they're feeling they're in the bubble. And when you're in a bubble with someone, you're finding them difficult. You don't want to work with them. Like you're complaining to your partners about them. The last thing you're thinking is feeling mm-hmm. sorry. But what you're saying is if you don't ask, if you just think, well, the reason they're behaving like that is because they're yes, filling right. the blank. Yeah. Yes, we'll just right. call them a jerk, right? If you're saying like, oh, they're just a jerk, then you're missing the point. Because when someone is behaving like a jerk, we have to separate the behavior from the person. There's a reason why they're yeah. behaving that way. That's And what then what saying. I do is I challenge them even further and I'll say, Okay, please just stop and think. There has to be at least one redeeming quality about this person. I said, even their mother loves them. So stop for just a minute and really stop and think, what is admirable and appreciative? What can you appreciate and what can you admire about this person? And how about focus on that? Leverage that. Use that with that person. And in fact, tell that person and see if that changes the dynamics between you and them. You're not going to change them and whatever their issue mm-hmm. is. Right. Change you're, your you're approach. Meeting, right. You're focusing on the one thing that you know you respect about them. It's a commonality between the two of you. So it sort of maintains that relationship, even if it's a fairly weak relationship. Yeah, I really appreciate you kind of going into that because I think that there are a lot of people that are going to be listening to this that have a manager or work with another colleague that is difficult, that does behave emotionally and doesn't have a lot of patience. We are, of course, referring to people that are often high in drive, but aren't getting what they want, or they're high in conscientiousness. And not to say that people with with S and I temperaments can't also be difficult, but when you're very high in conscientiousness, you know, it has to be right. And therefore, if I'm going to have five people reporting to me, everything they do has to be right. So That's, I think, where the controlling part comes in. Then the more people that work for them, the more people they've got to control. And and so it can actually get completely out of hand and overwhelming because you're basically playing whack-a-mole, trying to make sure there's no problems anywhere. It's just not very scary. And and the thing with this gal is she had no one reporting to her. She was kind of like a project manager type role where she really needed a lot of people around her to get done what she needed to get done. And unfortunately, everyone was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone was stupid. stupid. Like nobody knew anything except for her. I mean, like, like, Uh, didn't matter what anybody else said. It was a bad idea. I mean, she was, uh, she, and she was a lovely (laughs) person otherwise. I mean, like, if you didn't have to work with her, you'd think she was the most interesting and fun and friendly person. So, yeah. 
Tina, you actually worked voluntarily with the Cub Scouts for over 12 years. Could you tell us a little bit about how leadership was fostered in that environment? Yeah, no, it wasn't babysitting by any stretch of the imagination. It was very structured. We installed leadership roles, even for the little kids when they were six and seven and eight years old, like the older ones would be kind of in charge of the younger ones and they had roles in the meeting. In fact, for me, again, just because of my background, one of the big things we instilled is that these kids were going to speak in front of each other Mm. every week. Like we had the person who was going to, you know, lead the Pledge of Allegiance and hold the flag. And then we had the honor guard and like, and everybody had a role. Everybody had something to do. Everybody was involved and everybody was going to speak mm-hmm. in front of the group because wow. we know from my experience with Dale Carnegie that public speaking is the number one fear and phobia that people have. And gosh, you know, when you get into your work world and you're in business, it's all about speaking and making presentations and delivering messages. If you don't have that, <laughs> it's going to hold you back. And that's the reason Dale Carnegie started his business back in 1912 is because he knew that this was an issue for business leaders. And then what happened is as he was running these public speaking programs, he was listening to these reports that people were giving and he was beginning to realize, wait, 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 wait. Like the problem here isn't, it isn't public speaking, it's self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Right. And worse than that, he said, these people don't know how to get along with each other. Like th- this is what he was hearing. Every day, people would stand up every week and talk about the problems they were having with mm-hmm. their coworkers. He go, whoa, 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 whoa. He's like, wait a minute, time out. So then he wrote the book, right? And because the book came from this notion that people just needed to be better speakers and that's how it goes. <laughs> wow. So the public speaking part, getting that experience, it gets easier and easier and easier once you've done it. Right. Like, I think, like, the bigger the audience, the more. You know, I, I hear that too. We've got s- some people here that don't have a lot of public speaking experience. And when they do it, it's like they've got so much apprehension about it. And the, the, the older they get and the less they've done that, the more of a barrier it becomes. And I suppose it's a bit like sex. You know, once you've done it, it's you realize that it's actually doable. Right. But, can but, be but fun before, too. Yeah. And it can be fun. Right. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't have to be such a transaction. Right. But, you know, you end up with this. You didn't know where we were going to go with this podcast, did you? But I I think, like, when it comes to public speaking, some people do have that fear. But once they've got through it, they've overcome it or they get better and better. Let's take this to a slightly different angle when we're talking about coaches getting involved in working with a company. What doesn't work as a coach? Have you seen or experienced in the early years or even just in terms of, like, seeing people that didn't succeed? As coaches, is there anything that stands out to you about those people and the approach that they took? I can only think of one coaching engagement that I had that I would consider to be a failure. This guy was slick and we would meet every week and I did the same program that I do for everybody, same structure, everything and meet every week and what were your wins and he'd tell me his wins. Like, oh, that's really good. Congratulations. He was really making progress. About two months, maybe three months after our coaching engagement ended, they fired him. And they did the development with him, not because he was a fix-it-up project, but because they saw him as a high potential. And he had a few challenges with a few people in his team, but it wasn't like he was a problem. And they fired him like three months later. I'm like, what? What? What do you mean? 
Well, apparently he had been fooling me the entire time. I mean, he Ooh. was, he was, <laughs> he had me so buffaloed. That's what I said. He was slick. He had me so buffaloed. And I have to say, I mean, I have enough I and S. I read people fairly decently. He lost it. Like, so the gal that we were talking about, yeah, he went in and lost it on this person. This person, him and this other person had had conflict and they had always like kind of clashed. And then just one day he went over the edge with her. I mean, nearly violent with her, nearly violent with her. And wow. he was fired on the spot. Wow. So this yeah. is someone that's BSing you, basically telling yeah. you, oh, that's going along with it, being involved yeah, with Yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, and even reporting back that he was making all this progress. <laughs> uh, and I usually check people on that. And I did. Like, okay, you know, what are you seeing? Uh, I'll call him Joe. You know, what are you seeing in Joe? Yeah, yeah, you know, he, we're starting to see him soften. Blah, blah. Okay, good, 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 you know. Maybe he didn't fool me all that time. I don't know. But that was the only time I ever considered anything that I had done a failure because I feel like that should have never happened. Mm -hmm. The work that we did together should have helped him better with this relationship and manage himself. It is difficult when you're working with someone. As you said, you can't make someone want to be coached, right? So if they don't want to be coached and they're still going to go through the motions, then it sort of wastes everybody's time. But coaching is a difficult one because there's not a lot of research in coaching. You know, I remember when I was interested in this, I was in an academic space at the time. I remember going on a panel at Columbia. I don't know how I was invited onto that, but I was one of the panel on it. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do my homework. I'm really going to sort of do a lot of research on coaching. And it was amazing how little I found in terms of like the science, the data and, and et cetera. It's such a one-on-one -on -one experience that unless a lot of people are watching you, listening to you, it must be hard to really know what coaches are doing, how they're doing it, and if it's good, if it's bad. So, you know, you've obviously been working and you've been brought up in the Dale Carnegie education. And I'm guessing there's a standard that people that work at Dale Carnegie are exhibiting hopefully the training they've had. But it does seem like a bit of a wild west in the coaching space. And I just wanted your opinion on this in terms of how do you know if someone is a good coach? Is it just hearing back from the person that's been coached that they like that person and hearing back from the management that they are getting the results? Is there a better way of sort of standardizing and measuring someone's coaching abilities? Oh. That's a really good question. When you were talking, it made me think that being a coach is like kind of being a parent for the first time. There's really no handbook that comes with it. It's a little bit of trial and error. And every person that you work with is going to be different and they all have to be handled a different way. So structure wise, I think a good coach will have a structure that they use or a process that they use that includes certain key activities or certain key conversations that need to happen. I can tell you that for me, my experience with Dale Carnegie, the training that I got to be a trainer with Dale Carnegie is what made me able to do what I do right now. And that was, you talk about somebody who has their 10,000 hours, right? They're quote, yeah. unquote, a subject matter expert, right? So when you get your 10,000 hours, you pretty much know what you're doing. But if you're just trying to figure it out and it's in the beginning, my best advice to somebody who wants to learn how to do it is practice on your friends. <laughs> you know, like find a willing participant and who doesn't mind spending an hour a week with you and someone who's you know, try it willing out. to take some personal exploration and yeah. needs a little bit of guidance. So let's take that into there. Are probably some people listening thinking, hey, how do I get into this? 
obviously you were sort of born into it in a way. Your family was part of the Dale Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh. And so I'm guessing there were people that came from all different backgrounds that entered that space. What would your advice be to people that are thinking about coaching? I would say if you have no experience at all with training or educating or coaching, if you have no experience, and let's just say you're an HR generalist or yeah. some role like that in an organization, and you think, wow, this would be good for my company to have an internal coach. I would probably say a good place to start would be to use like the International Coaching Federation, the I think, yeah. is that right? ICF? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to go through one of their programs to get certified. And that will give you a really good basis for structure, as I mentioned, process, and then the rest of it you get to figure out as you go. <laughs> and, and I would also say, I would also say. It really is like sex, isn't it? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not, you know. Sometimes they're in it, sometimes they're not, right. But, you know, I think, too, you almost have to have the right kind of personality, temperament, and heart for people. If you don't really have a heart for people and people tire you out and wear you out, this mm -hmm. is probably not going to be a good role for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like where we're going in this conversation because – there are some people that have got natural talents at this that are probably listening and thinking, hey, I'm a good listener. Hey, I really want to help people. And it's amazing. You can learn so much by doing it and you can take these courses. But if you haven't got those two things, you're probably not going to be a very good coach. So in a way, if you've got that intent that you want to help people and you are methodical and you're willing to sort of put in the discipline and learn the trade, so to speak, and sort of learn through doing, you're probably going to have a lot of the major ingredients to be a good coach. There's probably people listening that their idea of coaching is really giving advice to people. And I, yeah. I those people listening- I think that's see. the worst thing you can do. Right. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> talk about this, Tina. What's your thoughts on this? Because my understanding is that giving advice is, is really the last option that is available to a coach. But what's your philosophy on that? Yeah. The only person I know who likes to be told what to do is my stepson, because he says it just makes his life easier, right? Because uh -huh. it, it makes he, everybody happy if he, he just does. He doesn't have but, to think. Right. But most people do not want to be told what to do. And a coach's job isn't really, in my opinion anyway, it's just my opinion, a coach's job isn't to offer advice. A coach's job is not to tell you what to do or even how to do it. I like to think of Tom Landry who was a Hall of Fame coach way back in the 80s and 90s, his definition of a coach, and this is kind of the philosophy that I've adopted, he says that a coach will get people to see what they don't want to see, hear what they don't want to hear, and do what they don't want to do so that they can become the kind of person, he would say athlete, that they've always dreamt of being. So if we think about that as a coach, because a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. So giving advice is really not going to help that person have that emotional change or have that behavior change. And chances are they're not going to do what you say anyways, because <laughs> it wasn't their idea. <laughs> but if as a coach, we can get them to see things through self-discovery and do things and hear things that they don't necessarily want to be open to, but we know as their coach, it's going to be good for them. 
it takes a lot of finesse Mm -hmm. to get somebody to come to those conclusions on their own. So we're like the Sherpa. I think Mm -hmm. you talked about this earlier. As a coach, we're like kind of the Sherpa that knows how to navigate through this journey, this tough waters that they're in if, if they're having challenges. And, you know, our job is just to say, oh, look over there. <laughs> hey, <laughs> check that out over there. Look what's up ahead and just get them to the end where they want to be. We're like another set of eyes, essentially, giving them and explaining to them what other perspectives are available and asking them, what do they think about those perspectives? Do they want those things? We're asking them questions rather than giving them advice. And I think that is a critical difference between being really coaching somebody and telling them what to do. When I'm working with people, I try and use their own words as much as possible. If I tell them to do something, the likely it is they may not fully understand that point or they may not necessarily want to do that. But if I can say, you know what, you said this five minutes ago and you said this Uh one minute ago. So both of those things kind of sound like they're related to X. Is that something that can you see that connection or even what do you think those two things have in common, right? Even better. So I often find that people, when they hear their own words used to them or or brought up to them, they're far more likely to listen because people tend to like what they say. They tend to appreciate themselves. Especially because they are generally the smartest person they know, right? (laughs) Absolutely. They're always right. Yeah. So I appreciate you clarifying that. The other thing I want to ask you about is... At some point, are all coaches the same in terms of we're a, I'd like to say we, because I I believe I'm in in there somewhere. Does it matter what we do? Does it matter what we specialize in? A good coach, would they be a good coach on the soccer field, on the baseball field, in an educational setting, perhaps from a counseling perspective, student counseling perspective, or working with people that learning to play an instrument? We're all can sort of overlap that with teacher and counselor. But at the end of the day, when I think of a coach, I often go to sports because that's Mm -hmm. where most people think and hear of that name. Do you think that what we're doing can apply to sports in the same way that we're working with people in the office? Well, I think the concept, again, going back to my definition of a coach or Tom Landry's definition of a coach is we get people to see things and do things that they would never dream of doing on their own or can't see themselves. I think The concept of that can be applied to sports, music, all those other things that you mentioned. I think the concept can be applied. I think in general, some of the elements of what we do to get people there probably applies. I think it's probably really helpful that if you're going to be in the coaching arena, that you know what you're good at. Mm Mm-hmm and you stay in your lane. So I mentioned right in the beginning of this podcast, like visioning is not my personal strength. Strategy, I stay out of that because that is just not my strength. Strategy and vision kind of go together. I mean, I understand strategy. I I can talk about it to a degree, but like I am not going to be a business coach and help an organization plan their three-year strategy. That is not in my wheelhouse either. I think it's really helpful to know what your lane is and where you're good. If you have experience for instance, sales, right? I'm an awesome sales coach, right? Because I know sales. That's been my background. People, because all my years with Dale Carnegie, I can totally help you with relationships. Like that's my lane. Communication, that's my lane. So you're saying that really, if you're going to go into coaching, you have to kind of know what you can and can't do. I'm an organizational psychologist. I'm not a clinical psychologist. 
I don't get into the weeds that far. And if I do, I'm quick to recommend they go and speak to someone else. I'm an executive coach, not a business coach. And I think that as you just defined, we need to be kind of clear on what our role will be in coaching, what it's not, stick to what we're either certified in or we've trained in or what we happen to be very strong at. But I'm getting your your experience. Where do you have experience? Industry-wise, like another thing for me, like where I am kind of least comfortable would be in medical, just because I don't have a lot of experience in the medical industry, hospitals, nursing homes, doctor's offices, like that, finance. Right. Don't have a deep experience level there. I think the guy that I listened to, your last guest, he had a very deep background in finance, so he belonged, you know, right? That made sense for him. Yeah. And for him, that was just the first training that he ended up doing. So he ended up being around. So he didn't work in finance. But there's a certain type of character that works in finance in the UK. And there's a certain kind of former military structure. And so he fit perfectly into that because of the military connection. But I think also he had experience in the area. So I think what you're saying is, if I understand you correctly, people that are interested in getting into coaching, one avenue is to just look at what you've done so far. And look at the things and the experience that you've had. Okay, you've worked in HR, but what kind of industry have you worked in? Oh, I've worked in healthcare HR. Okay. And you've got some of the things that we've described today. You're interested in some of the things that we've spoken about today. Well, then if you are going to go into coaching, why not pick healthcare as an industry, a sector that you would specialize in? Is that kind of where you're going with that? That's exactly what I'm saying. I wish someone had said that to me going into coaching. Because when I was like 26, 27, I was doing a master's degree in organizational psych. And I remember talking to some people, and I think I said this on the last podcast, that they said to me, you need to be 10 years older. You need to have a beard and gray hair. Excuse me, not 10 years. They said like 20 years older. You need 20, <laughs> 20 years older. You need to have gray hair and you need to get a PhD or you need to be involved in all these things. And really listening to what you're saying now, all I really needed to do was look at my background, which had been sales, It had been technology and it had been fast moving consumer goods. And if I'd have just said, right, I want to be a coach to that industry, it would have been such a clearer path. And I would have felt like I had some value when I was walking into that interview with that company versus, oh my goodness, I want to be a coach. And it's kind of crazy and it's out there and there's a million different coaches doing a million different things. And it's kind of overwhelming and I'm probably not old enough and all of the above. I'm putting you on the spot here. How do you normally feel about? people reaching out to you on LinkedIn. Totally open to it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I finish any kind of a Dale Carnegie program that I do, I give my LinkedIn profile information to say, I'm your forever coach. You can call me anytime if you have a question and not too many people take me up on it, but I am helpfulness is a bedrock for me. So uh, yeah, I'm happy to have people connect with me on LinkedIn and it's just my first name, last name. I'm the only Tina Graziato ever anywhere. So I shouldn't be hard to find <laughs> as long as you can spell my last name. <laughs> and we'll definitely spell your last name in the profile for the, this podcast. Go. One of the reasons why I invited you on here is because I love talking to people that are passionate, right? I love talking to people that are upbeat, optimistic, positive. And I know that that's a big philosophy of yours. And, you know, maybe those are things that you learn, but I think those is just our personality kind of coming out. So I really, really appreciate that. Do you spread all that positivity at home too? 
You said, you, you know, I know, I know you've got two stepchildren and a son, right? So do, does that, yes. does that, does oh, that, yes. does that all feed out into the family? Do they accept it? Does that come out? Yes. Unfortunately, this does not get turned off uh, ever. <laughs> so I'm at home. I won't work. It doesn't matter. Two specific things I can recall, like when my son was in elementary school and I'd go in the morning and I'd say, wake up, son, wake up. It's time to go to school. He hated it, hated it because, you know, kids like they don't want to be. And uh, it was terrible. And then uh, the other example I can think of is my my stepdaughter. The first time we took her skiing, she kind of knew a little bit and she was getting frustrated and she's crying and she's carrying. And I'm like saying, just come on, say this with me. I can. I will. I want to, I can, I will, I want to. And even today, she's 22 years old, 23 years old. Every now and again, she'll remind me, I can, I will, I want to. You know, she's looking for a job and then she'll give me a little pep talk that I gave her. You know, I love that. 12 years ago. I can, yeah. I will, I want to. You know, I think there's probably some listeners in England that feel that that's, that's a little bit cheesy. But to a kid, <laughs> you know, imagine if you'd never had training before, right? And some American comes in and is like, right, everybody. I will, I, you can, you will, and you want to. That's kind of like Tony Robbins coming to the UK and giving everyone high fives. People in the UK are a little bit concerned about giving someone a high five when they don't even know them. But yeah. when you put it into the minds of children and you repeat, rinse and repeat, and you can see that they're actually using it, it actually helps their self-confidence, it actually helps their self-belief. You can see now that your stepdaughter is obviously, that's left an imprint in her mind. And most likely it's been useful for her in terms of the way she sort of views new challenges. Yeah. And just to circle that back to what we were talking about before, right? The think, feel, do, mm -hmm. get. If we affirm to ourselves, like with a pep talk and can I will, I want to. Okay. Yeah. But just the way that we talk to ourselves, do you know the person that you speak to most in a single day is yourself and what you say to yourself every day matters. And if you want to change the end results that you get and you want to change the way you feel, you got to change how you talk to yourself. And so positive affirmations, even if we're not saying them verbally out loud, but being able to, in our own minds, see ourselves being a success, telling ourselves, you're going to nail this. You're going to be fine. This is going to be good. Probably more information than you need to know. 2019, I had cancer. I had to have chemotherapy and I went through that whole thing. And there was no sitting in a corner crying for me. I used my positive self-talk, said, I got this. It's going to be fine. The doctors know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I worked the entire time, never missed a beat. And that's not to brag. That's just to say that the way you talk to yourself matters. Okay. Firstly, I didn't know that. And I'm glad, very glad that you survived that. And I'm, I'm <laughs> proud of you for fighting and having a positive attitude about it. And secondly, yeah. you, you were so beautifully said. I think anyone listening, we take that for granted, the whole vocal voice in our head. Are we even thinking about the percentage of that that's positive versus the percentage of that that's negative? I think like we all hear our voice. We all talk to ourselves. And yet I think a lot of people don't really look at the percentage of positive versus negative. And, and I think when you're faced with a life and death situation, really the only option for survival is a positive one. Because the alternative, I mean, we can argue and, and there'll be people out there that will argue that mental health can lead to physical health and mental decay can mm -hmm. lead to physical mm -hmm. decay. But there's probably some doctors out there that would argue there are some circumstances where regardless of what you think about, your body's going to do whatever it's going to do, right? But at the end of the day, you're left with very little you can personally do about it when you've got cancer other than to have a good mental attitude 
and to focus on working and moving forward. So I think it's, I really appreciate you saying that and even opening up about your health. It's going to be inspiring for anybody that's suffering with cancer or any kind of illness. But also it's a reminder to us that all of this positive stuff is not just for training. It's not just for no. working with coaches. And it's not just an sort of American thing because if we don't have that kind of self-confidence, what ends up happening is we end up just talking negatively to ourselves. We end up being very self-critical. And then we start putting up all these psychological barriers about, well, I can't do that or I'll never be able to achieve this. So Tina, thank you so much. Really great talking to you. Can't wait to invite you back on and go a little bit deeper into talent development, executive coaching, and of course, more of the Dale Carnegie philosophers. So thank you very much, Tina. Well, it's been my pleasure, Ben, and it's been a heck of a lot of fun. Our time flew right by and I always enjoy talking with you too, Ben, because I get smarter after a conversation with you. So thank you. Very welcome. All right. Thanks very much. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, or just tell your friends about it. Until next time, this is Business Psychology Unplugged.